The Constitution doesn't tell us how many justices. The original number was six. When I went out on a limb when Scalia died and said we should have eight forever, four Republicans, four Democrats, one of my defenses was it was six originally. Why not eight? So the number's not in. What is in there is it says there shall be one Supreme Court. So some people argue that number one means same people, same cases. I don't think so. It means there has to be an institution called the Supreme Court. Congress can then staff it any way it wants. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and I am here with our co-host today, Lester Tate. How are you doing, Robin? Hey, I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. Surviving the pandemic okay? So far, so good. Yeah, same here. Um, Trying to see our way through this. Um, with us here today, we're happy to have our guest, Eric Siegel, and he is a professor of law at Georgia State University School of Law, and Lester, if you'll take over and introduce our, our guest. I will. Uh, professor Siegel is the uh, Kathy and Lawrence Ash Professor of Law at Georgia State University's uh, College of Law. He has a bachelor's from uh, Emory University and a JD uh, from Vanderbilt University Law School, two of the uh, uh, great Southern institutions. Uh, He clerked for uh, Judge Moy on the Northern District of Georgia and for Judge Albert Henderson. Uh, I wrote, uh, Eric, that it was on on the 11th Circuit. Was the 11th Circuit or the 5th Circuit uh, then? Oh, you're killing me there, Lester. You're (laughs) killing me. It was the 11th. All right. All right. Uh, And he is the author of two books, uh, both of which I plan on reading. I have not read them, but Eric and I are. friends on Twitter, and I found that we share a lot of, uh, I think, beliefs uh, about the law over the years. And one of his books is called Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court uh, is Not a Court, and its justices are not, uh, are not judges. Uh, his second book is called Originalism as Faith. They're both on Amazon, uh, I believe. I, I, I looked at those. And so we're, we're just so glad to have you with us uh, today, Eric, and to talk to us a little bit about the Supreme Court because we've just finished the Supreme Court term uh, this year. And uh, I want to start, if I can, by just asking you a question uh, because you're, you're an academic and I, I guess for most of your career, you said you've been at Georgia State for 30 years, you've been an academic. Um, I, I'm, n- I'm decidedly not an academic, uh, but I, like I said before, I think we have uh, similar views on the Supreme Court. And I'd, I'd like to start by just asking you, why do you say the Supreme Court's not a, not a court and that uh, the justices are not judges? Well, thanks for having me. And you, your organization does great work, and I'm really um, flattered to be here. So there are a lot of things we assume judges will and will not do to deserve the label judge. For example, and I'm not suggesting the Supreme Court does any of the following. Don't take bribes if you're a judge. If you, can, right, if you always take bribes, you're not really a judge. Don't decide cases involving your sister, your brother, your wife, your, you know, obviously, right? Um, so that those are things everybody agrees on. But there's one more, more subtle thing, 
that I do think all Americans agree, maybe all people everywhere agree, uh, judges are supposed to do. And that is take prior legal materials, prior law, cases, texts, statutes, constitutional texts, minimally seriously. And that's all, that's all I'm asking for this purpose, minimally seriously. It has to be a little bit of a tug, not in how you write your decision, but how you vote. If, in fact, tomorrow the Supreme Court issued a statement that from now on we're going to make all things considered decisions, We'll look at the prior law, you know, just to see what it says, but we're going to do what we think is best, all things considered. So if we're in favor of health care, uh, the Affordable Care Act, we're going, to, we're going to uphold it. If we're not, we're going to reject it. If we like affirmative action, we're going to say yes. If we don't like it, we're going to say no. But we don't really care what prior law says. We're just going to use it as a guide. We wouldn't call them judges, right? We'd have to think of another name for those people because we don't expect people in robes behind the bench to make public policy and make all things considered decisions. My book from, goes from 1803, Marbury versus Madison for those people in law school, but the very first, or lawyers, the very first constitutional law case, which should never have been decided at all by the Chief Justice of the United States, even though it was. Go from 1803 to this term, and the Supreme Court as an institution, not individual justices from time to time, but as an institution, does not take prior law seriously enough to justify the label judge or court. And um, that does not mean there's not a case here or there where some judges made some decisions that were law-like. But the institution as a whole makes all things considered decisions in the cases that we care about. And that's why it's not a court. And, and if they admitted they did that, then everybody would agree it's not a court. So, so uh, I, I, Robin has uh, and, and it sent me uh, a lot of good synopsis of some of the, the decisions that were made this term, uh, and and I'm going to let her uh, I'm going to let her do a more thorough cross examination than I would do, but uh, let me start out uh, just by saying I believe in the uh, the June Medical versus Russo case, which is the the, the abortion case of this term that you had Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, saying, I, I really don't agree with, uh, with uh, the rationale uh, of, of those who would support Roe versus Wade, but we just had this case last term, and so I'm gonna vote, I'm gonna vote with, uh, with, with what the ruling was last term, even though I didn't vote for it last term when it came out. Is that the kind of uh, judge behavior that, uh, that that you're talking about that you expect from a court as opposed to uh, a group of octogenarian politicians? <laughs> well, that's well, not, not octogenarian. I don't know. They're pretty young these days, you know, they get, that's right. they, they get appointed at 50 and stay to 90. That's a whole separate problem. We should talk about one right. more, one more. I'll answer your question directly, but let me just go back for one second and say, when you give any human being or institution made up of human beings, unreviewable power for life, you're asking for trouble. And no other country in the world gives, except for maybe Iceland, I haven't quite figured that out, but no other free country in the world other than maybe Iceland gives their highest court judges life tenure. And that's a big part of the problem psychologically, and we can talk more about that. I'd like to talk more about that. Yes. Let's, but let's talk about Justice Roberts in June Medical for a minute. <clears throat> you're right, the, the case was four years ago. There was a case four years ago involving the same statute, but a different state. And 
Justice Roberts made clear that he, well, he did, he, he, he voted differently in that case. He voted to strike down that law. He voted to uphold this law. And in his concurring opinion, he gave as his really only reason this idea that I have to rely on precedent. Hogwash, malarkey, ridiculousness. Because Justice Roberts has a huge record of not following precedent in other areas. Um, and one recent example is a unanimous 1977 Supreme Court decision about a really important decision about a public sector state workers who belong to unions and the union dues they pay. And the court said that in 1977, unanimously, that uh, if you don't belong to the union, but you do work for the public sector, you still have to pay your due. Well, Roberts voted to overturn that case without blinking an eye. Uh, Shelby County versus Holder, the, of course, incredibly egregious voting rights case, uh, effectively overturned a landmark 1965 decision in its embrace on equal state sovereignty. His affirmative action decision in, in his very first term, which ended with the absurd soundbite, the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race, which is really dumb. Um, implicitly, well, I, it, of course it didn't overturn Brown versus Board of Education, but the meaning he ascribed to Brown was not the meaning Brown had. And I could go on and on. So if I, if I had Justice Roberts in front of me, I would say to him, why did stare decisis, meaning reliance on previous cases, make you vote this way in this case when it didn't make you uphold other cases? And then when he gave me some ridiculous answer, I would say, let me present a hypothesis to you. It's an election year. It's one of the most important elections. I think whether you're pro-Trump or against Trump, I would like to think if educated people would say this is one of the most important elections in American history. We say that a lot, but the truth is this really is that. We, we, you know, we have for a lot of reasons. So if you take the term as a whole, Justice Roberts clearly did not want to impact the election. Now, I think I think in the I think in the trial lawyer business that that those questions you've talked about asking uh, 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 Justice Roberts are called forking the witness, you know, <laughs> where you give them two forks. Which which, which is it, you know? Uh, so you've still got a little trial lawyer in you, uh, notwithstanding your thirty years at the classroom. Uh, well, I was a trial. I, I was a lawyer for the Department of Justice for four years and did a lot of motions work. I didn't do a lot of trial. I didn't do any trial work, of course. I just want to say, um, let's assume I'm right for a minute that not just June Medical, but a lot of the cases we're going to talk about were effect, affected by Justice Roberts's view that he didn't want to affect the election. There's a lot of evidence for this. He's the chief justice. He's the swing vote. He's the first swing vote chief justice since 1936. He has incredible, but 1936 wasn't divided on partisan lines. So he has incredible power. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I'm not, I'm not, I, did, I wrote several year-end pieces. I'm not criticizing the idea that the Supreme Court should decide big cases with an eye towards a political goal of not affecting the election. But let's be 100% clear. That has nothing to do with text, nothing to do with history, nothing to do with precedent. It is the justices, you know, uh, other views that are taking control there. Well, that happens in most constitutional law cases. So if Justice Roberts had written a bunch of opinions that he wrote most of the important opinions this term, if he had been up front at the beginning, 
and said, you know, we're judges, we're not elected, we're life tenured. We have to uphold the Constitution. But if we can do so modestly and with humility in an election year to avoid interfering with the election, because we want the voters to, and I'd be fine with that. So it's the lack of, tra- it's, it's, it's a serious lack of transparency. One more thing about June Medical, and, and this, now this is a little bit uh, wank, wonkish is the right word, I think, or, or academic, but it really won't be academic next year. So he says he ag- he's going to follow this previous case. He didn't. He changed the legal result in that case. I'm sorry, the legal rationale in that case. And he changed it in what some law professors, the person I blog with, Mike Dorf, who's very, very famous. Um, other professors wrote op-eds about this. He, 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 uh, Leah, Leah Littman at Michigan wrote an Atlantic piece on this. He changed the rationale in a way that could absolutely jeopardize much more severely abortion rights in the future. But he didn't even really admit that. Like he says, I am following that prior case. Then he didn't. Again, for me, it's the lack of transparency that makes the, this a real problem. Eric, let me ask you this. In the, um, the June medical case, we had the precedent you're talking about, which is, I think, the uh, whole women's health uh, versus Hellerstedt. Why would the Supreme Court take, essentially, except cert on, on June medical? Essentially the same case. So, so a lot of, before the opinion came out, a lot of people thought, okay, they've accepted cert. Here goes Roe v. Wade. This is their opportunity. Um, and surprise. So Chief Chief Justice writes the opinion, and it's just the opposite of what a lot of onlooker court lookers d- anticipated. Why why accept cert in the case? So, so there are three or four short points I can make. First of all, no one knows. Period. Period. Full stop. No one knows. Which leads me to a. I want to spend the next thirty minutes talking about the lack of transparency at the Supreme Court in a number of ways, but two of which are relevant to your question. You know, um, pretty soon Justice Ginsburg is going to resign, you know, or, or die. I mean, sadly, and that's going to happen sometime this decade or whatever. Um, I don't know what she's doing with her papers, but if she's like most justices, her papers will be secret for fifty years. The taxpayers who fund the papers or emails, actually, it's not even. It's papers, believe it or not. The taxpayers who fund the, the memos, the, all of that, don't get to see those papers forever. So we may, you know, there are papers. So we may never know. That's one. Two, I have written a fair amount about this whole writ of certiorari thing. Let's go back and educate. There are nine justices, but it only takes four to grant a writ of certiorari. We assume that it was the four conservative justices who voted to grant cert in this case hoping to undo what the liberal justices plus Justice Kennedy did four years ago. That's what we always assumed, and I think that's probably right. Maybe Justice Roberts is mad, was mad at them for doing that. Maybe he didn't want to do it in an election year. Maybe he didn't know how he would feel about the balance between his obvious anti-choice views. He has voted against every abortion law. He's voted to uphold every abortion restriction ever, except for one technical case until this, this case. So maybe he was pissed off. And let me say something about it. These are human beings. These aren't gods who come down from a marble temple on a hill. Well, they do have a marble temple on a hill. But they're not, <laughs> but they're not gods. And they work together. And, you know, if, you ever, if you've ever been to a meeting of your executive committee or whatever you have to govern your organization, 
I am sure you are all on the same side, are all well-meaning, and have violent disagreements. It's not violent. I mean, you know, severe disagreements with each other about the best way we, to We call that robust debate, not, yes. not That's a better expression. an argument. So think about this for a minute. You have robust debate knowing you're going to be working with this person for the next, let's say, three or four years. Some of that, some of that debate has to include how do I convince this person in the future, right? I mean, to do the things I want to do. These justices have the same emotions. They go to the bathroom, they eat dinner. So, so I don't know why Roberts did this. Um, I'll tell you, but I'll tell you the reason he, he didn't do it. And that was following precedent. Because he has not followed precedent many, many, many times before. Now, if he gave us a theory, if he had, if he had recognized the times when he didn't follow precedent and said, this time I am and here's the difference, Siegel would be happy with that. Like that's so, transparency. So, so let's uh, let's uh, uh, let, let, let me segue into another one here, which I, I personally think is is the most fascinating case of this past term, which is uh, McGurk versus Oklahoma, uh, where uh, the Supreme Court, with Justice Roberts not being the swing vote, with Gorsuch being the swing vote, now says a large swath of Oklahoma, including much of the city of Tulsa. Uh, is now part of an Indian reservation and, and essentially governed by Indian law uh, to, some, uh, to some extent. Uh, and I think that most Supreme Court watchers were saying that absolutely will never happen. Uh, if you uh, really look at what happened in the case, it's a guy that's been convicted in state court of some uh, uh, sexual offenses against children and uh, comes up with this theory. It's almost like a John Grisham novel uh, as to how uh, this case makes its way uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, and then, lo and behold, uh, uh, with Gorsuch's vote, uh, the, 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 uh, a new trial is granted and uh, a fiefdom uh, for, uh, for uh, Indian, Indian rule in Oklahoma. No case since NFIB versus Sebelius, the big Affordable Care Act case of 2012, demonstrates my theory the court is not a court as much as this case. This is now, but let me say at the outset, well, uh, I'll explain why. Um, first of all, it's, it wasn't that the Supreme Court would never hold, and neither would Gorsuch, that Tulsa and the area around Tulsa is Native American land. That's not what they held. They held for certain major crimes. The state of Oklahoma can't try these people. This guy, by the way, got sentenced to a thousand years per thousand. Made me wonder, after 900, is he thinking maybe I'll get out next time? I mean, um, he's a heinous individual by all, by, by, by all accounts. Um, but they didn't hold that. They hold that for certain major crimes, Native Americans have to be tried in federal court. That was what the holding Now, this case was before the Supreme Court before. It was before the court in, I believe, 2016, after Justice Scalia died and before Trump won. And the court was deadlocked 4-4. That's a bat. It was deadlocked 4-4. I also want to throw in one more thing just to make this even more of a John Grisham novel that makes this awesome. Justice Scalia, before he died, in the Obergefell same-sex marriage in his dissent, where he wrote this, you know, well, the most bitter dissent of his career. One of the things he said, and that, and that says something, right? Um, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry this is a long answer, but the punchline's worth it, I promise one of the things he said in his dissent was, we are just a committee of nine lawyers, could have cited Spiegel, but didn't. We are just a committee of nine lawyers, 
and we're not even diverse. For example, he said, we have no Westerner, parentheses, California doesn't count. Because Justice Kennedy was on the bench with from Sacramento. But he said, parentheses, California doesn't count. All right, that's Scalia in 2016. That, that had the tall building lawyers lying in it too, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, and everything. Scalia dies. You know, McConnell does his thing. And, and the court deadlocks 4-4. Now, on this case. Now, let me tell you something. Native American, the relationship of Native Americans to state governments and to the federal government is as complicated, as impossible to figure out as any area of law except maybe ERISA I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it is horrifically complicated. In that 4-4 case, the four liberals wanted to rule that the land was for the Native Americans or for major crimes because they just like the underdog. They didn't, these are not Native American law experts. They don't, they just, they just ruined for the underdog and that's fair. And the conservatives all voted against because they want the status quo, which is also what they want, right? Conservatives want status quo, most of the time. Liberals want the underdog. They divide 4-4. We know how Scalia would have voted, 100%. He would have voted against Native Americans. We know that for a fact. He dies. And then a Westerner comes on the bench. <laughs> and when I say a Westerner, I mean a self-identified Westerner. Justice Gorsuch's autobiography, which I've reviewed quite negatively, um, goes out of its way to paint him as this hat-wearing, horse-riding, ranch-hand cowboy from the West, from Colorado where he lived. Not leaving aside the fact that he grew up in Washington, D.C., he went to the same private school as Brett Kavanaugh, and his mother was head of the EPA. Leaving aside, uh, had to resign in shame. Leaving aside all of that, he is, we'll take him at his word, he is a self-appointed Westerner with a big hat, and he has written a lot about his empathy for Native American tribes. Good for him, by the way. I don't fault him for that. Good for him. But that's what decided this case. That the priors, the, the prior values the judge had before coming to the bench. I will tell you what did not decide this case, emphatically. Who got the law right? Because nobody knows. Who, if you read the majority, don't do this, because it'll take you five hours and your head will spin. But I did do it. <laughs> I don't know anything about Native American law other than sovereign immunity and a little bit of African cases. I read the majority every word. I read every word of the dissents as a pure lawyer, you know, litigator. Who has the better of this argument? Forget about it. There's no way to know. So what decided this case was the court appointing a Westerner. If the court hadn't appointed a Westerner, the Native Americans would have lost. I mean, if the president had nominated a Westerner. And that's all ironic, given that Scalia would have voted the other way. I'm sorry, that's a really long answer. That's my answer. Well, I think what was interesting in the McGirt, or at least a lot of a lot of it was very interesting. One of the things that got me is that uh, Gorsuch called out the dissenters for um, straying from textualism, getting away from the text of the statute or the treaty. I may be just a treaty, um, which I find interesting that you have these so self-called strict constructionist and and that goes as far as to the point where they don't like how it comes out when they strictly construe something and then when they they don't like the way it comes out then they're, all of a sudden they're, they're they're like let's let's do what justice requires to hell with the treaty let's 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 uh figure it out yeah the way we want it to come out 
Um, in numerous, well, not numerous, but in, because in, he hasn't been on the bench very long. What, Gorsuch has had three terms, maybe, three or four terms? In landmark free speech religion cases, Justice Neil Gorsuch doesn't care about the text or history of the Constitution at all. Not for one second. It's not for one second. The Janus case, the Trinity Lutheran case, the Espinoza case, um, the um, Sisters of Guadalupe case this term, does not, not Sisters of Guadalupe, Lady of Guadalupe, excuse me, Lady of Guadalupe case's term. And those are four country-changing, landmark Supreme Court constitutional law cases. He didn't care about text and history at all. So again, we are back to, do they really care about text and history? No, they do not. Now, I want to be clear about something. Thomas, Alito, and it looks like Kavanaugh is on his way. But let's just talk about Thomas and Alito, where we have long record. They are partisan 100%, 98%. Um, they vote GOP every time they can. Justice Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor vote Democrat 100% of the, 98% of the time. They are equally at fault, but there is one very big Neither Ginsburg nor Sotomayor claim to have an objective, neutral um, idea, uh, technique of deciding cases. They would say they look at a case and we'll take everything into account and we're living constitutionalists and all that, which, which is, I think, um, a farce, because I always vote Democrat, but a little bit less of a farce than the, original, the fake originalism of Justice Thomas. Alito does not claim to be an original. He, actually, Alito and, and Sotomayor and Ginsburg are all the same. They just fucked up all. The moderate, the, the justice in the middle, not moderate, the justice in the middle don't just vote their partisan mm -hmm. politics, but they do vote their values writ large. So, so let, me, let me ask you, I, I saw Jeff Tubin on. I always think he's got pretty good insight. Um, and he was talking about the Trump, Trump versus Vance, uh, the uh, Trump versus Mazers case, which was the, the Trump tax not just tax returns, but uh, uh, financial documents, you know, cases. And, uh, and he said something that to me as, as somebody that's practicing in the trial courts, I've found to be true, you know, never in the history of American jurisprudence has a subpoena ever really been, you know, defeated if issued by the federal government to get somebody's private documents. And I, I've had that experience. I've litigated that, you know, had a great case and, you know, now nah, you can have the documents. So here we have uh, two cases involving the same individual, Donald J. Trump, that have gone all the way, you know, to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and lo and behold, uh, you know, the, the, the court not only upholds what Tubin said, that you're not going to defeat that, uh, but no, they don't sorry, do it. Lester, I'm sorry, but they didn't hold that at all. Sorry, but go ahead. Well, well they've sent it back. And uh, they sent it back in such a way that it may have the practical effect uh, of defeating that. Uh, but they have refused to rule in favor of Trump, as maybe I should say. But every other president that's been before the court on some issue like this, uh, if you look at, the, at Jones versus Clinton, if you look at the Nixon tapes case, uh, those have been unanimous rulings. And you're talking about the court as sort of an institution. You know, those have been unanimous rulings. This was not a unanimous ruling. Uh, it slow walked it, you know, by sending it back down. And my question to you is, are, are you surprised by that? And does it show some sort of evolution in the court since what, what we were getting with Clinton versus Jones and the Nixon 
uh, the Nixon case? That, that's a great question. Um, both at, at, the, at the time the Nixon case was decided and the time Clinton versus Jones case was decided, we should tell the listeners what that was about. Maybe Nixon tape case was Watergate and you know, could Nixon hide his, his famous tapes? Clinton versus Jones was, did Bill Clinton have to defend a civil case brought against him during his term of office, or could he delay it to after his term of office? And the court held you have to defend it now during while you're president. Um, in, in, in both of those cases, we did not have five Republican conservatives and four liberal Democrats, where the most liberal conservative is more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. In other words, Justice Stevens, a, a, a Republican, was more conservative than, um, uh, was more liberal, excuse me. Justice Stevens, a Republican, was more liberal than Justice White, a Democrat, for example, during some of that time. Um, so the court has not been divided like this. Five conservative Republicans, four liberal Democrats. You know, that, that began with Alito and Roberts when they were, when those Stevens were still on the court. That just began in 2010. So that's a 10-year-old phenomenon, if so, give or take. So that's, that's one thing. That's one difference, right? That's one, we can, we can, that's an obvious difference we can see. Gorsuch and Roberts are much more conservative than Breyer. And Breyer is more conservative than Democrat. All right, that's one thing. Two, um, the court did exactly what I thought it was going to do, frankly, and what I predicted, which is wrong under the law. I, I think they got the law wrong on a little bit of this. First, they said, Trump said, I'm above the law in every respect. He really said that. He said in the New York litigation, if I shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, nope, can't pursue me, got to wait till I leave off. His lawyer said that. Once his lawyer said that, he had no chance of winning that. None. Because the Supreme Court is never going to take it. I can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue as president, and you can't do anything about it. Okay, that was never going to fly. So they gave the ruling that the president isn't supremely immune above the law. All right, fine. On the ground, Lester, they sent back the congressional subpoena with a four-part balancing test that is as, as unpredictable and fuzzy as you can imagine, so that five Republicans get to decide that, that test when it gets back to the Supreme Court eventually. So that's the first thing. On the New York case, same kind of thing. They sent it back, they delayed, but they're less concerned about the New York case, the five Republicans on the Supreme Court, because they know that's grand jury material. That's, right? that's way different. If a congressional committee got Trump's financial records, and even if the court ordered them to keep them secret, how long would they stay secret? Rachel, Rachel Maddow would have them that evening, I think. Yes. You know, that's, that's, uh... But not true. Not true for the grand jury subpoena, right? Not true. Probably true. That's probably going to stay secret. Here's my point goes back to the Supreme Court not being the court. I think the political, if, if the goal was to stay out of the election, and I think that's an admirable goal. If that was the goal, they did it, right? Those cases would not affect the election at all. Neither will June Medical, other than, other than Trump can use it to say, I need more judges to overturn Roe and Casey. He could, you know, that's, that, that's the only way that case. So that theme, goes throughout this entire term, except for the religion case, where the court changed the world. And why did the court change the world on the religion cases? Because that's what means the most to them. Speaking of the religion case, let's talk a little bit, you mentioned it earlier, I think the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, versus Pennsylvania. 
Um, I mismentioned it actually, but go ahead. Yeah, I think you conflated two cases, but, yes. but we may talk about that Guadalupe case also. Um, but in this case, it was an employment discrimination case and set in a, I think, a Catholic school. Uh, that's Our Lady of Guadalupe. That okay. Is, that, that is the case we should talk about. Okay, the Guadalupe or the Little Sisters? Well, I, the Little Sisters, I, I, we can talk about it if we had all the time. It's the least, it's by far the least important of the three religion groups. Okay. Let's talk about the, uh, tell well, me the name I'm of the. Sorry, Robin. I need to clarify that. Okay. On the ground, the Little Sisters case might be the most important case because it may deprive women of, of much needed contraceptive devices. And that's a really terrible thing. But the court got that case right, I think. And I think the court did the right thing under the law in that case, as much as it pains me. And I hate, I hate the result. I hate it as a policy. But I think the court got it right. So that's why okay. I say it. All right. So the, our, it's, is it Our Lady of Guadalupe? Yes. One more thing about the contraceptive case. Yeah. If a Democrat wins, and if the Senate goes Democrat, they can reverse that. That case can be gone. And politically, we can get rid of that case. We can't get rid of the two-con law religion cases this term. So the Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey-Barrow um, dealt with an employment discrimination by two non-religious or non-Catholic teachers, and they filed a discri discrimination claim saying that they felt they were being forced to teach Catholic religion to their students. Uh, no, no, I, I'm sorry. No? Sorry, Robin. That, 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 can I give the facts real quick? Yeah, give the facts. I'm sorry. Um, they were Catholic teachers. Well, there's, on one of them, there's kind of a debate, but it doesn't matter for our purpose. Okay. Let's start at the beginning real fast. Congress has passed a series of laws protecting people from employment discrimination on the basis of race, gender, national origin, now sexual orientation after this term, as the Supreme Court interpreted it, and age and disability. These were two teachers in religious schools who said they were fired in violation of Congress's desire to prevent discrimination based on age, discrimination based on disability. And those are national laws that apply to all employers above a certain, no, I forget, I mean, 50 employees or something like that. Okay, now let's all agree on something. Congress cannot tell a temple you have to hire a priest. <laughs> and Congress can't tell a mosque or, or, or uh, a church can't tell a church who your priest has to be. Like that would be unco unconstitutional under the First Amendment. We that's, all agree on that. That's also a ministerial exception to Title Seven, right? Well, it's a, it's a, it, they call created. it that to avoid taking responsibility. That's the justice's interpretation of the First Amendment. But I think we all agree with it. We're not going to let Congress tell a temple who they hire as their rabbi. That would right. be ridiculous. Right. Now the question is, does that exception apply to teachers? And if so, which teacher? And in this case, the court, and for what reasons? In this case, the court said it applies to all teachers, more or less, for any reason. And the for any, in religious school, and the for any reason part is important. If they were fired because they didn't teach Catholic doctrine the way the school wanted Catholic doctrine to be taught, then I would say, well, I don't think Congress can get it. But that's not why they were fired. They were fired for secular reasons, for age, and this, for purposes of summary judgment, we have to you know, take a fact, mm -hmm. for, for age and for disability. Letting religious schools fire people for secular reasons 
that are illegal under federal law is putting religion above the law. It's not religious liberty. It's not religious neutrality. It is putting religious schools above the law. Now, sometimes we have to do that. If a priest was running the school and the priest was fired, I would say, no, we can't. The First Amendment just, we, that's too much trouble. We can't do that. But for teachers teaching math, even if they put a Catholic spin on it, <laughs> um, to, to extend what you call the ministerial exception, which is what it was called in the first case, to non-ministers, puts religious schools above the law in a way um, that, that is wrong. It's just wrong. It's unfair and it's wrong. How far would that go? What if uh, they had a janitor who's uh, an atheist? This court suggests that that might not be covered by this exception to the federal law. Um, but until I see it, I won't believe it. <laughs> so, so when we're talking about the, the, the Supreme Court uh, stepping in and telling uh, uh, churches you got to hire a preacher or a synagogue, you got to well, hire a rabbi. Right, right. But one of the things that they did sort of do in this last term, I think, was uh, tell a state legislature, you've got to have a tax break. And I'm talking about Espinosa against Montana, where they passed a, a, passed a tax break for, for people going to private schools. You could make a donation. The Montana Supreme Court said it can't apply to religious schools. And so the whole thing's gone. No tax break for anybody. It goes to the, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts says, hey, we're going to give everybody that tax break again. Yeah, so this, this is the case that I'm most personally affected by, by any case since Shelby County versus Holder. So I think Shelby County, the voting rights case affected our country dramatically. So that's a long time. There's been a lot of big cases since then that I've been emotionally involved in. This is the most. And here's the reason why, before we get into it. When I was at the Department of Justice, I litigated a, a big case in San Francisco. 1990, 1990, and the issue was what aid are governments allowed to give to parochial schools under the establishment clause of the First Amendment? At the time, the Supreme Court had been wrestling with that issue since 1947. So that's 1947 to 1990. And you're not going to believe me, but the test at the time was governments could give textbooks, secular textbooks, to private schools religious schools, that was okay, and virtually nothing else, which meant they could give a textbook, but not a map, which- And what, what, what happened to an atlas? <laughs> exactly, that you, you were way ahead of it. All right, I litigated those cases, and this is going to, for your listeners, this, the irony of this, I don't want you to lose the irony of this. I was the lawyer for the Department of Education, representing them in a billion, more than that, $3 billion program. My co-counsel in the case, among others, was the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference that had a, and he was a former Supreme Court clerk, a Williams and Connolly partner. And his client was the United States Catholic Conference who had a vested interest in making sure their schools got the money, right? From 1947 to 1990, and, and dozen, a dozen cases, to the best of my knowledge, no one ever suggested that a state had to give aid to religious the only issue was, could a state give the aid under the establishment clause? Not did it have to under the free exercise And those are two very different questions. Then Trinity Lutheran comes four years ago involving resurfacing program, uh, playgrounds. 
Flagrant. And the court says for the first time in its history, if you give that kind of aid to private schools that are not religious, you have to give it to religious schools. But a lot of it, that's a made up rule. But a lot of us said, but they limit it to playgrounds. So there's a footnote that said, this case is only about playgrounds. It's an amazing thing. Um, so some of us said, who are familiar with this area of the law, well, a playground, you know, is for safety. It's for it's not part of a learning environment. It's not it's not Bibles. It's not it's not even you know, so. Okay, that's why the court limited the playground. Montana comes along, and this changes the world. And just I'll stop talking. Bottom line, they made up a rule that if a state decides to assist reducing the cost of private secular schools by giving tax credits and using taxpayer dollars. They have to do the same thing to private religious schools. That is the most anti-originalist, anti-textualist, anti-present. That's another thing. Where, where did Roberts get that rule from? Why didn't Why didn't somebody? I I took I took plane rides from Washington D.C. to San Francisco, a dozen of them, with the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference. He never once thought for one second. The free exercise clause required this, and it was his job to think of ways for the Catholic schools to get more money. So this is a, a, a terrible case. It is anti-states' rights. It is anti-federalism. It is anti-constitution. It's anti-precedent. It's anti-everything, and it comes from the justice of imaginations. And it's going to work. And it's going to work serious harm. And one last thing: it may end up, if it's extended out, and I think it will be, overriding thirty-eight state constitutions that have provisions that don't allow taxpayer money to go to religious institutions. 38, that's that's a huge number of states to overrule in one decision. It's crazy. Sorry, I'm a little emotional about that. To me, it seemed like it obviously violates the Establishment Clause, so they favored one clause of the Constitution over the other just to get to the result I, I don't they think, wanted. So I disagree, Robin. I don't okay. think it obviously violates the Establishment okay. I think this. I think states are allowed to give non-secular aid, the same non-secular aid they give to private non-secular schools, excuse me, secular schools, they can give to religious schools. Now, part of my feeling about that is because I believe in deference generally, but I don't think it violates the establishment. And I really don't. And the court has said that. But I do think, as the court held under, get this, Chief Justice Rehnquist, that noted you know, liberal, um, in a seven to two case, while Rehnquist was chief justice, Washington State had a program that gave scholarships, same as this, you know, different level, but gave scholarships to people studying for certain things, but said, not if you study for the ministry. If you study for the ministry, you can't get the aid. That case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Justice Rehnquist, seven to two, wrote, there's a play in the joints between the establishment clause and the free exercise. And what the establishment clause allowed the aid is not required by the free exercise clause. That's Justice Rehnquist seven to two. I'll give you two guesses who the only dissenters were. This was during the, the Rehnquist court. Guess who the dissenters were? Scalia and Thomas. Even though there's not an originalist syllable to justify their dissents. So, so I want to. I want to. I, 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 I that's believe. another example of Roberts. He said he didn't overturn that case, but he basically overturned that. Case. So. You know, I think the amount of the tax credit, if I read the opinion correctly, and it's been weeks since I looked at it, 
uh, but it was it was one hundred fifty dollars. That's correct. It was, it was one hundred fifty dollar tax credit. And uh, as as somebody who's in the courts and you know fighting over over money, you know one hundred fifty dollars is not uh, that that's not uh, a whole lot. And so I, I have uh, you know I guess like you are about originalism. Uh, as being just a, 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 a faith that people believe in and the Supreme Court not being a court. I, I have this theory that from a real law perspective or a real lawyer perspective, that the Supreme Court has become, um, to, to use the quote from the Spoon River Anthology, a picker of, ri- a picker of rags and the rubble of spites and wrongs. You know, they're, they're simply looking for uh, uh, things that they can seize upon, you know, in order to make make new policy, you know, frankly, to make new policy or to discontinue policies that they don't like. Uh, am, am I wrong about that? Um, so, no, you're right about it, but let's just, with, with a couple of footnotes. Most of the court's cases don't end up on the front page of the New York Times. In a normal term, they take, they used to, they used to take like 140 cases per. They're so overworked now with four law courts, they used to have two or three, that they take about 80 cases per. My friend, retired Judge Richard Posner, used to go crazy about this. I, I was very, I'm very lucky in my life. He's a very close friend of mine. And he used to go nuts about this because, you know, the set, he, would, he wrote 3,000 opinions in his career. I don't think there's any justice who ever did that. Um, but in any event. Um, and he's returned to the bar, too. He was uh, representing. He's, he's retired, very. But, um, but, but my point here is we don't hear about most Supreme Court cases. So. So your, your, your um, description is accurate about the cases we hear about. There were no, you know, that, that's, that, that's maybe eight to 10 cases a term. But those are the cases that matter. So it drives me crazy, I'm gonna call them out, when people like my friend slash Twitter enemy, but really friend, who I just had on my podcast, Jonathan, Jonathan Adler, he dri- he's, a, he's a professor at Case Western. He drives me crazy, because every time the court issues a uh, nine nothing or eight one decision that some people might care about. He goes, see, it's not all politics. It's not all values. It's not you know. It's eight to one. It's seven. I'm like, no, Jonathan. Take the universe of cases people care about, and there you will see that many, if not most, of them are five to four. So yes, in the five to four big cases. Um, by the way, speaking of that, let me just mention that Kagan and Breyer went along with the, not the, the Espinoza case, which no liberal could ever go along with, but did go along with the other case, the Lady of Guadalupe case. And so when I criticize that case, people say, why did Kagan and Breyer agree? Come on, come on, how could it be so bad? Well, we know the answer to that. We do. We kind of know it. Kagan is playing, they're both playing a very long game to gain the chief's affections. It's what they're doing. It's, we know now that he blackmailed them, to, the, to literally blackmailed them, literally, not with money, but with decision. He made them join his Medicaid, his awful decision to, to invalidate the Medicaid part of Obamacare in exchange for his vote not to overturn the entire law. Um, Roberts' biographer, Joan jo Biscott of USA Today and other places, very serious journalist. Um, uh, she's no longer at USA Today. She... she strongly said that in her book. I said, I said it the day after the case was announced. I said it as a theory, not a fact. But, um, so Kagan and Breyer aren't judges either. I'm not saying they are. They're going along with Roberts. And Kagan is definitely, Kagan is a 
fantastic politician. She saved Harvard Law School. Harvard Law School hadn't hired a faculty member in like 10 years when she got there to be, because they were totally, totally um, deadlocked. And she made a trade. She brought in two conservatives for one liberal. She broke the deadlock and did a masterful job. She's a great politician. She's working on Roberts long term and everybody knows. It. So the fact that it was seven to two says nothing. Can we talk about another case that I would say, at least from my viewpoint, um, was the most surprising opinion, the Bostock versus Clayton County. Did you, you know, did you see I, I that did. coming? A hundred percent. I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And I didn't, 90%. I don't know that anyone saw Chief, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, or I, mean, no, I didn't see that. I didn't see Roberts. I, I, I saw five. I definitely saw five. Okay. Eight to six was hard. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't think it was going to come out like that. I'll, I'm not going to lie. Well, Robin, uh, um, so, me, so that's the case that said that Title VII, which bans discrimination, quote, based on sex, is also sexual orientation and transgender status. Too. Um, now, when I said I saw it coming, let me be clear. I have, I am not, I want to say two things. I'm not a statutory interpretation expert, and this case was about interpreting a, a statute. Yeah, but I right. know a lot about it. Like, I feel like I'm a con law expert. <laughs> I know a lot about statutory interpretation, but not an expert. But I became one for this case. I mean, I really went deep. Deep, 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 deep. <laughs> and I came out of that depth. And, and by the way, Judge Posner had this case and wrote a concurring opinion in the Seventh Circuit, and he and I discussed it at length in person, which is one of the reasons I can say I dug deep in this case. And what I yelled at Judge Post, we used to yell at each other, um, after the fact, I yelled at him, this case was 50-50. <laughs> I mean, it was under law, just 50 I know it's right and wrong about this case, but on, on pure statutory interpretation, we know nobody in 1964, nobody, or 72, Nobody thought this applied to sexual orientation. Nobody, not a person. Um, does that mean they can't apply it that way today? Well, that's an interesting question, and we, that would take another podcast to debate. <laughs> Trust me when I tell you I talked to conservatives and liberals, both of whom were experts in this area. This was a tie when it comes to what the law required. But here's what I also knew. Roughly 70% of the American people are in favor of gays and lesbians having equal rights at work. Um, with uh, heterosexual. And, and if you take the set of educated, elite, whatever that, define that any way you want, white males over 50, which clearly applies to um, everybody in the Supreme Court except Thomas, um, not white. Um, if you take that set of men, I think it's probably 80%. I'm making this number up, but I'm guessing it's even higher than 70%. The educated elite in this country want gays and lesbians to have equal rights. They just do. So I, Mark Tushman of Harvard Law School used to say, the best way to predict a Supreme Court opinion, that's in a tough case, we know it's going to be tough. There's going to be a swing vote or two. It's going to be tough. Best way to predict, close your eyes and imagine a New York Times headline. And that's what's going to happen. Now, close, now if you do that in this case, Imagine this Times headline, so right before the election, right before the election, Supreme Court rules gays and lesbians can be discriminated against because of their sexual orientation at work. Wasn't going to happen. It yeah. wasn't going to happen. Now, yeah. Gorsuch claims it was all textualism. Mm -hmm. That is, I'm going to, can I say a little kind of a bad word? You can edit it out. That's just bullshit. 
<laughs> the, the, the two dissents in the case thought they were being textualist, and they came to different conclusions. Hey, the answer is textualism doesn't get us anywhere in this case, or non-textualism. What gets us, what gets us there in this case, are two things. One, most of America agrees with the result. Uh, other than evangelicals, almost everybody agrees with the result. Two, it's a case about justice. And I'll, 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 I'll go on record as saying, I know that's coming, Lester, that's why I threw that in there. I'll go on record as saying that Tom, I'm sorry, um, Roberts and Gorsuch had the right values in this case, and good for them. Now, someone's going to shoot back at me, wait a minute, but Roberts dissented in the same-sex marriage cases, and it was, and it was the most violent, violently worded dissent of his career. And I'll say, okay, fair enough. That was about marriage and marriage and more marriage. And he's a Catholic. He's a devout Catholic. Well, well, you know, a, a, a cynic of which I am sometimes accused of, of, of occupying that role. That's why we get along so well. I know. Who, who regularly uh, litigates in uh, and reads the decisions of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia and the 11th Circuit would say it's a pyrrhic victory anyway because there's damn little protection you know, for any women, any minorities, uh, you know, the, the right to jury trial has essentially been in, uh, abolished in favor of trial by law clerk, usually a magistrate court's judge's uh, law clerk in the Northern District of Georgia. So they're not going to get any more protection sure. than they would have before. And I would bet, I'd bet everybody on this podcast uh, with me right now, a steak dinner uh, with the wine of your choice, that once this case goes back up, a jury will never see it. Uh, it's in Clayton County. It's in the Northern District of Georgia, and it's going to get thrown out on summary judgment. I would, I, I bet you all dinner on that. Uh, and if I'm wrong, I, I'm, I'm happy to pay up. Lester, so, you're interested to know when I reported to work for Chief Ju Chief Judge Char Charlie Moy of the Northern District of Georgia in 1983. On my and, and he was a Republican, but he was a good judge and a good man. I shouldn't say but. And he was, a, well, these days I can say, but, but he was a good judge and a good man. And um, he was very conservative. We disagreed, on, uh, we disagreed on almost everything, but he was a man of decency. He was. And that's what most Republican judges were like. That. And he said to me in the first day, you have several jobs here. And you know what they are. I've told you them before. But here are some other jobs you don't know about. One, if we get a domestic relations case, I don't care if there's diversity jurisdiction, you get rid of it. I don't want any domestic relations cases in my court. That was one. Two, we were in the middle of a bankruptcy crisis. This was when the Northern Pipeline case and there was no bankruptcy courts anymore. I said, you and I have to figure that out. And that's, I'm chief judge. And that's going to be really tough. And we're going to figure it out together. Three, right now, employment discrimination cases are in our court. Someday those have to go to magistrates. <laughs> and that's, that's what happened in, in, in the 11th Circuit. And that's really terrible. I agree with you 100%. So, so let, me, let me ask this question. Let's talk, let's talk a little treason, if you will, for a minute here. So uh, I, let's say that the Democrats uh, take the Senate, take the White House, retain the House of Representatives, and, uh, and uh, your phone rings, you know, and it's uh, 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 Speaker Pelosi, and she says, uh, we've read your book. We know uh, how you feel about the court. That there needs to be some reforms over there. There's a lot of different things that are done. You like you were talking about other countries, like in the UK, they have I think 12 justices, and they don't all even sit on the same case all the time. Uh, so what 
what reforms would you, as an expert in this field and having written extensively about this, what kind of reforms would you like to see uh, for the United States Supreme Court? Okay, first, every public oral argument has to be live streamed. Everyone. If you, every public hearing. If you have a public hearing where there are citizens present, you know, then you have to, then you have to make that hearing available to everybody because C-SPAN is willing to do it at their cost. So it's not a taxpayer dollar situation. That's one. Two, we need a constitutional amendment abolishing life tenure because although we're smart, we're a smart country, well, not anymore, but we will be again if that happens. We're a smart country, but no other country in the world does this for a court like ours, get rid of life tenure. That's going to require a constitutional amendment, but it needs to be done. Three, um, writs of certiorari. We need to know, this got back to the discussion earlier about which, how do we know, Robin, your question about June Medical and why they took the case. I never got to this, I meant to. We should know who votes for what. We should know which justices wanted to hear the case and which justices didn't. That's an incredibly important decision with major public policy implications. How can that be secret? That's ridiculous. So that needs to change. And then I would say, um, Nancy, my friend, um, your intuition is going to be to, to, to stack the case. Because that's what, McCon that's what McConnell did. I mean, he did. He, he stacked the case. Um, let me talk you out of it. You don't want to stack the court. You want to weaken the court. You want to weaken the court dramatically. And now I'll get, ser I get serious for two minutes. Just, I mean, I've been serious all the time, but it's really serious. My 30 years studying constitutional law tells me some things that I, I, I really think are true. And I wish I had written Supreme Myths last year. So if I had written last year, I would have had the country agreeing with it. I wrote it during the Obama administration, and so liberals didn't agree with it. Conservatives did. The court is too strong and too powerful and always has. We can have judicial review. We can have a stoppage of clearly unconstitutional action without having this kind of judicial review. That's neutral. In a, in a Rawlsian, um, behind the curtain kind of way, we don't know who's going to be on the court, and we don't. Let's have a much weaker court. The court has not been kind to minorities ever, not over uh, 12 years out of 200. Warren Court, 12 years, that's it. When the court does progressive things for minorities, there's always a, always a pushback. There's always, in fact, we wouldn't have Trump without Obergefell. We wouldn't have Trump without Obergefell. Now, maybe Obergefell was worth it, but we wouldn't have him without. Roe caused a backlash beyond imagination. A lot of my liberal friends disagree, they're wrong. Um, so what you want to do, Nancy, is weaken the court. And you can do that in a lot of ways, unless you, you hit nail on the head. Let's go to a European-style system where we have 16 judges, 18 judges, whatever. Random revolving panels, which we have on the Court of Appeals, right? Uh, in theory, anyway. In the Fifth Circuit, we don't have it. But in most circuits, we have random courts, we have random panels. I don't know if the fact about the Fifth Circuit, but I'm pretty sure. Um, and, 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 and let's look at their model. And one of the things that should be done, no one ever talks about it, is dividing up the Supreme Court's responsibilities from constitutional law and statutory interpretation. Those are two very different. Now, the constitutional objection to that, I think you can do all of that without an amendment. The Constitution doesn't tell us how many justices. It's been, by the way, the original number was six. When I went out on a limb when Scalia died and said we should have eight forever, 
for Republicans, for Democrats forever. And one of my defenses was it was six originally. Why not eight? You know, but anyway, so the number's not in there. What is in there is it says there shall be one Supreme Court. So some people argue that number one means same people, same cases, you know, means one. I don't think so. It means there has to be an institution called the Supreme Court. Congress can then staff it any way it wants. That's my opinion. Um, so there are many, many ways to um, get at weakening the court. But I say this to all my, I'm a progressive all the way down. To my progressive Democrat friends who are listening, we don't want a more progressive court. We want a weaker court. A, yeah. more, pro a more progressive court in the short run helps progressives, but in the long run leads to Richard Nixon's law and order campaign leads to Ronald Reagan and the evangelicals getting in bed together, which forever changed American politics, and I think gave us So, so let me, let me ask you this, and I wanna, you know, there, I, I have said before, I, I think there are three, three skills for lawyers. There's being a scholar, because people think you can bluster your way through, you know, or, or generally wrong about that. That uh, there's there's trial advocacy and and appellate advocacy skills that you have to have, uh, and then uh, there's a little bit of politics in that little 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 politics. You can do two of those three. You're a pretty good lawyer to be a great lawyer. You kind of got to do all three. Like you're talking about Justice Kagan, Justice Roberts. I think is probably a, a pretty good uh, example of that too. Is an excellent you know advocate uh, before the United States Supreme Court. So one of the things that we're seeing more and more now, though, are people who are just academics, you know, going on, going on the Supreme Court and also the appellate court. Uh, if you're a trial lawyer like me or Robin, you know, your chances of ever being on an appellate court, uh, although if somebody comes to offer me, it knocks on my door offering me an appellate judgeship, I'm going to meet him with my shotgun. <laughs> but, uh, but you don't, you don't uh, you're not seeing people that are in the courts every day and know what it means that have actually represented an individual that have put 12 jurors in a box, you know, and argued a case there. Uh, do we have too many academics uh, uh, on the appellate courts? Has it become really this academic exercise that, that has made it that, that uh, rubble of spites and wrongs? So going back to my friendship, which I do like to tout because I'm very proud of it, because he's, I think he's, really great man with Judge Posner. Um, so Judge Posner's career before he was appointed to the Seventh Circuit was he worked for the antitrust division of the Department of Justice, and then he was some commissions, and then he was an academic. And he wasn't a trial lawyer. He would admit that. He didn't never tried a case in his life. He would go try cases as an appellate judge, Lester, because he said, I can't do my job unless I understand their job. And, and but you had people too, like uh, like uh, you know Hugo Black was a hell of a trial lawyer before he went to the U.S. Senate. Lewis Powell was was a president of the ABA was a trial lawyer up to really you know was trying cases when he was nominated. So that's a fairly recent that's a fairly recent different direction to go you know for the for for the Kagans and Scalias of the world instead of the 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 whites. I mean the. Uh, 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 Hugo Blacks and the uh, Lewis Powers, and, and even and even Justice Brennan was a, a New Jersey right New Jersey Supreme Court justice. That's not being a trial lawyer, but you but you know at least it's something. You're you're, you're on the ground a little bit in some states, but you know. Um, I, leaving aside the Supreme Court issue, 
this is a terrible disaster for the appellate courts. And, and, and the Trump administration is actually putting, and this is driving a lot of people crazy, it must be driving you nuts, a lot of people on the district court who have no trial experience. Not, not only not only no trial experience, Eric, but but no courtroom, no no case no experience, experience, no, no experience. nothing. You know this guy. This, this guy gets striking a jury. They've never walked in a courtroom before. That's what kills me. But 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 Robin, not just no trial experience, no lawyering experience. <laughs> Justin Walker, this McConnell bedside yeah. friend or whatever. Um, he, he didn't practice law a day in his life. And now he's on the D.C. Court of Appeals after going there from the District Court of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But that, that person has no more b- business being a judge than my, my, my golden, my, my lab. I mean, it's nuts. <laughs> um, Obama did this a teeny bit. No, all presidents do this a teeny bit. They, they're all guilty of this. Political favors get called in. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump has escalated that. And... Um, People always talk about the appellate courts and how dangerous that is, and that's fair. They're more important. On the ground, his trial court appointees have been much worse um, because they don't have trial experience. And that's like, that, that is kind of, I guess that's like sending a pitcher out to the mound who's never hits the ball. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Doesn't make sense. Lester, you have a shotgun? I do. No, I've got multiple shotguns. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a true country lawyer here. So uh, well, let's not discuss the Second Amendment. <laughs> uh, I, I can do one more case. I don't know if, if we can sure. convince Eric to hang on for another five minutes to discuss it one more. If you're not tired of me, I can do it. I'll do, let's do one more. And, and uh, I was going to talk to you about Ramos versus Louisiana. Yes. The, you ask me about it. You may, no since we're since we're talking about striking a jury and having a jury decide, and Ramos was the case that said um, for a criminal conviction, it was it a death? I can't remember. Was no, it a death penalty? Just a criminal conviction. The Constitution, Sixth Amendment, requires a unanimous jury. By and the way, can you read that in the Sixth Amendment to me? I didn't see where it was, uh, but but that's what apparently they based it on. I think it's the right decision. It may not be in the Sixth Amendment, but uh, I certainly think that if if someone's liberty is uh, going to be taken away, at least twelve people should all agree. Uh, that's not I, a lot to ask for. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, that's in the fe- that that's the federal. Okay, first of all, I know nothing about criminal law, so I'm talking at it. First time today, I'm talking kind of out of my nose. I'll talk about it for ten seconds, fifteen seconds. Because Robin, I'm not an expert in that. And I try not to talk about things I'm not an expert on. Um, that was, that's been the rule in the federal courts forever, and I assume that's because the Sixth Amendment, I have, this is embarrassing, I have to go back and read. but that's been the rule for the Sixth Amendment forever, uh, for federal, federal trials forever. The question is, is that a rule for state trials? Of course I agree with you that that's just, I mean, that's a better rule. Pretty sure they're just making it. <laughs> okay. That's okay. That, that's fine, they make up everything. So. That's a rule I like, so I'll go, okay, yes. I'm not, I'm not an expert and shouldn't talk about it. You know, I, I, I made it through law school. Uh, I had a friend of mine that was that uh, started law school before I did, and he said, Lester, if you ever get stomped on a con law question, just apply a balancing test. Yeah. <laughs> that, that'll always, will always be <laughs> the right answer. Not true here, though. But yeah, not true right, in this case. Right, right. Well, you've given us a new one, the New York Times test, you know, that, well, which good. is – 
and and that one seems like that's a pretty good uh, pretty good uh, candidate for the New York Times. Yeah, you know the New York Times test. You know, yeah. uh, one one vote puts man in life for prison. You know, <laughs> in prison for life. You know, it's uh, it's 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 that kind of thing. Do you, you know, in most countries, and and one of the things that the Civil Justice Foundation, you know, promotes is the, is the right, the Seventh Amendment, the right to trial by jury, which is in civil cases. But uh, you know, if you go to places, you know, even our common law okay. ancestors. You said civil. You meant criminal, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, no. The Seventh Amendment is civil. Civil. Oh, still, over twenty dollars. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you go to places like England, you know, which is our uh, our uh, legal grandparent, you know, if you will, except in libel cases, you know, you don't get a right to to trial by jury in a civil case anymore. You go to Canada, you don't get a right to trial by jury in in, in a civil case anymore. Uh, I, I heard a uh, QC in Canada, you know, once say. You know, it's very difficult to tell parents that have lost a child that uh, they can't have a jury hear their case. But, you know, a crown prosecutor who's been slandered, you know, has to have 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 jurors, you know, review that case. Uh, and I'm seeing more and more with the advent of things like uh, Daubert uh, and and the kind of stuff that we talked about that goes on uh, in a lot of the districts, not just the northern district of Georgia with some of these employment cases. Uh, and uh, Iqbar and Twombly, which are these cases about pleading. You know, we're trying to go back to code pleading. They're really important. Those cases are really important. Yeah, and so, you know, to me, all of those are sort of an assault on the jury trial. And uh, and, and am, I, am I being paranoid to think that that's, that, that's sort of the direction that uh, if, if this current court stayed on, that we're going toward really, uh, really, abolishing the jury trial at some point. So I think, once again, you've exceeded my expertise. So all I'm going to say, you have. So all, all I'm going to say about this is what, sorry, Hosner used to tell me about this, which is if you asked him like the 10 stupidest provisions of the Constitution, um, you know, he'd probably talk about the Electoral College and some other stuff. But he thinks the idea that a civil case worth, you know, whatever, even the, the jurisdictional minimum, or whatever that is in federal court, should always be in front of a jury is crazy. I mean, it, it, and whatever it is, $20 can't be the number, right? I mean, $20 just can't be the number. Um, that's a ridiculous number. Um, it may have been the right number in 1787, but it can't be the right number now. Um, one thing I do know from my work is, as being, the, being one of the people who ran Georgia State Law Schools in of court for 25 years and going to a lot of their, and arranging and, and managing their program, is we did, I think, over, a 12-year period, two or three programs on, quote, the vanishing jury. And what I heard from experts in those sessions, which I was responsible for, but didn't participate in because I'm not an expert on this, um, there's absolutely less to an assault on the idea of a jury trial. Jury trials are going away. And what the very big firm lawyers combined with plaintiff's lawyers both think. So when, when King and Spalding, which is the biggest firm in Atlanta, for those listening, when King and Spalding lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers agree, people should go, wait a minute, we got we to gotta think about this. Is this is affecting legal education in the series? On the one hand, if we're not going to have any more jury trials, or almost never have a jury trial, legal education should take that into account. That's one side. Because a lot of what Georgia State does, for example, we have a whole program in the second year about trial litigation, college if there are no trials, why are we spending time and resources doing that? On the other hand, I've heard from, from King and Spalding lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers, the skills you learn in those classes about how to 
prepare and then argue in a trial, if you're a litigant, are skills that will help you in all other aspects of litigation, even if there's no trial. And I'm sympathetic to that view without being an expert. Well, we, we, and I don't know if Robin's got another question. Which I know no, Robin's got one other question because no, Robin has a great, great, got a great question that she always ends our podcast with. But I, I, I just want to say thank you so much for, for being on. I enjoy following you on Twitter. Uh, and and uh, uh, you and I have uh, ganged up on some folks, I think, a time or two uh, before uh, on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, where we where we know the fate of the republic hangs in the balance uh, based on, on what people read on Twitter. Well, Lester, I will say the fate of the republic definitely does not hang on. And I, I really appreciate you all having me here. But I will say this about Twitter. It, 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 it has done a lot for my academic career, honestly. I mean, I get invitations from Ivy League schools at times because of what I say on Twitter. It's crazy. Um, so so I, people make fun of it and drives me, drove me crazy today. I just went crazy. I attacked today from all sides but having said that it's important to some people it is. well well robin has the ultimate twitter question to 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 okay. end our um and end our podcast uh which probably uh, it is certainly not limited to 148 characters or, or whatever it is whatever the limit is now but it's a great question and i'll let her ask it eric how would you define justice that's quite a question <laughs> I think there are books devoted to that. Isn't there a book <laughs> of theory of justice by John Rawls? I think I was mentioning him earlier. Um, you did. Yeah. Um, for purposes of this podcast, um, I would say empathy plus fairness. We're never going to get to fairness if there's no empathy. And I think reasonable and 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 reasonable people can disagree on those issues. So I'm pro-choice all the way down. To me, I have empathy for women who want to terminate their pregnancy. And I think it's only fair to let them terminate their pregnancy prior to viability. But there are people of goodwill who have empathy for the fetus and think it is murdering a person and that it's not fair to murder that person. I don't, I can't privilege my answer. I think I'm right, but I can't privilege it. But if you go through the hoops of empathy and fairness, then we're doing all we can do. It's the people who don't go through those hoops that I don't, sincerely, that I don't think understand what justice is. And that, and that goes to any area of the law. So to me, in a very trite Twitter kind of way, um, if you really consider empathy and you really consider fairness, then I think your sense of justice will emerge and people in hard cases can reasonably disagree about what's done. But at least think of that whole thing after, I don't know which justice or which president it was, Obama, I guess. Obama came out and said he wanted judges to be, have empathy and he got attacked from all sides. The dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. All uh, right. Thank, that's thank, was that a sufficient answer for this? Yes, purpose? sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking time to join us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tony. It's been a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Eric. Thanks. Yeah. Did you find something that, that is newsworthy related to law in the news this week that you want to bring our listeners? I absolutely did. Uh, this week, uh, there was a uh, an attack on a federal judge's family uh, in New Jersey, uh, which 
involved a man who disguised himself as a FedEx driver, went to the door of the judge's house. The judge's husband, by the way, was a criminal defense lawyer of, of some note uh, in New Jersey, shot and killed the, uh, the judge's husband and her 20-year-old son, who was a student, was a university student. And uh, it turns out that they suspect at this point, because they found who they think the perpetrator was dead, was, uh, was a lawyer who had a case in her court. And, you know, one of the reasons that I bring this out is because it's, 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 it's so sad. And one of the reasons that we have the justice system, we have the ability to go to court, we have the ability to get decisions about disputes that we have is because it fights violence. And it is horrible when violence is interjected back into the court system where it was violence perpetrated against the judge. Uh, right here in Cartersville, Georgia, where I practice law, uh, we've had a, a lawyer within the last couple of years that was shot and killed uh, in his office. And uh, so I mentioned that to state that the work that we do is sometimes dangerous, but uh, the bringing of violence to it is extremely deplorable. My news, I, I totally agree with you, and I was very saddened to see that <clears throat> see that article uh, today about that. My news item is uh, has to do with a podcast that we're we've got actually coming up scheduled in the next couple of weeks, um, but it deals with uh, Dennis Perry down in Glenn County, who had been incarcerated for twenty years for a crime he didn't commit, uh, and that's basically been proven that he didn't commit it. And uh, it was a motion for extraordinary, ex extraordinary motion for new trial, which is very rare. Um, and um, I've actually argued one of those, the, the, the validity of an extraordinary motion for new trial in the Supreme Court of Georgia before. Um, and there are a lot of things that you have to prove, a lot of items you have to meet uh, to get it uh, ruled in your favor. But lawyers from uh, King and Spalding and Georgia Innocence Project filed the motion, uh, extraordinary motion for new trial based on this new DNA evidence and other evidence. Uh, and uh, that hearing was Monday, a week ago, and then Friday, last Friday, the judge um, granted the motion. And so uh, he, um, I think the only thing that has to be decided now for Mr. Perry's fate is whether the DA of Glen County is going to retry him for this horrible, horrible crime, the, the murders of, um, I think it's Thelma and Harold Swain, horrible crime, but whether they are going to, Glenn County will retry Mr. Perry. But I, I thought that was very interesting. I watched the hearing on uh, YouTube. Um, I really followed it all. And then we are going to uh, enjoy talking with an AJC reporter, Josh Sharp, about how he was involved in the Dennis Perry case. And, it's, and, and one additional fact is that uh, there is uh, evidence that has arisen, not only that the man in prison is innocent, but uh, which, uh, upon which someone else uh, could be tried for it. And that was part of the evidence that was presented in this, uh, uh, in this, uh, uh, this court hearing the other day. Yeah, it'll it'll be uh, it'll be a great podcast when we do it with Josh. So that's my news item. Uh, I want to thank our um, uh, our sponsor, which is the Georgia um, Civil Justice Foundation, 
and uh, we're proud to represent that foundation. I want to thank our producer, Raz Misher. Uh, I want to thank Noreen Hassan, who's with us today, virtually, and uh, her, she's a professor at Georgia Tech and helping us on this project. We appreciate her also. And you got anything else, Lester? I don't. I guess until next time, we'll see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.